This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of the Eucharist. We ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now so that we might be drawn deeper into its mystery, to understand it, to be devoted to it. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus, and we pray as he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom. St. Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In this talk, I simply want to consider what is the effect of receiving the Eucharist. When the host goes on your tongue, when you drink from the chalice, what happens? And what actually happens? I'm not, not physiologically, but uh, like, what is happening spiritually? Here, we're really going to be taught by St. Thomas. Uh, he's the main teacher. I'm just sort of channeling him, and I'll gloss on a couple of things he says. But the substance is from him. We're drawing particularly, for those keeping score at home, from the Tertia Pars, uh, question 79, especially Article 1. Uh, it's where this question, he talks about the effects of the Eucharist, or well, the effect of the Eucharist. And this first question is whether or not the Eucharist gives grace. So we'll focus mostly on that article itself. Um, when St. Thomas asked that question, he does four different steps in building an answer. And so note that he's going to give four different angles of thinking about the effect of the Eucharist. So it's not four different effects. It's like he's setting like four lanterns around one object to shed more light on it. So he's going to have four different ways of grasping what the one effect <laughs> of the Eucharist is in giving grace. He starts, uh, obviously, by asking, what is contained in the Eucharist? What's in the, what is, what is, what's in the Eucharist? It's Jesus. The Eucharist is Jesus Christ, present in his body and his blood. Uh, that's very important, very obvious, but very important to remember that the Eucharist is Jesus. There's not any diminishment by the fact that it's our Eucharistic Lord. It is Jesus Christ. And so what does Christ cause? What's the effect of the incarnation itself? So if you want to find the effect of the Eucharist, what is the effect of Jesus Christ coming into the world? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's John's Gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, and we received from that fullness. So the incarnation is a revelation of the mystery of God, so the truth of who God is. And also, it's a revelation of the sanctification that is effected by Christ, his grace, full of grace and truth. 
Those are the two parts of the one reality by how we're saved by Christ, by his grace and his truth. So when, when Jesus came into the world, he bestows grace upon the world. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So now consider the Eucharist. By coming sacramentally into us, as he came incarnationally into the world, Jesus causes the life of grace in us. Later on in John's gospel, he who eats me will live because of me. This happens to you. And the word became flesh, comes into the world. The Eucharist comes to you. So the full effect of the incarnation is, in a way, like, focused on this, you know, this tiny little strange white disc and given to you, placed in your mouth. The power of the incarnation is given to you. You know, with the undiminished power of Jesus Christ, he who eats me will live because of me. The Eucharist continues the work of the incarnation. It's not just one more thing among others in the Catholic faith. It is Jesus Christ, and so it brings everything that he gives. It's nothing less than the continuation of the Son's mission into the world, but now it's focused on you, focused on the individual recipient. And so when you receive communion, you'll do that, you know, soon, this morning, you will be receiving concretely in yourself the whole power of the incarnation, the life that Jesus Christ came to give to the world. Moving to the second mode by which St. Thomas considers the effect of the Eucharist, he asks, well, okay, so the, he doesn't say okay, Aquinas never says okay. I don't even know what the Latin for okay is. Um, but Aquinas says, well, we've considered what is contained in the Eucharist, which is Christ, what's represented by the Eucharist. And that's the passion of Christ. The body and blood. You ever wonder why the bread and wine are consecrated separately? It signifies the separation of Christ's body and blood in the passion. So what is represented by the Eucharist is the passion, the suffering, the death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Thomas concludes, the Eucharist does in us what Christ's passion did in the world. The same principle of what the incarnation does in the world, the Eucharist does in us. The Eucharist, as it represents Christ's passion, does in us what his passion did in the world. The Church Father, St. John Chrysostom, comments on the words from St. John's account of the passion. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So Chrysostom, commenting on this, says, since the sacred mysteries derive their origin from thence, when you draw nigh to the awe-inspiring chalice, so approach as if you were going to drink from Christ's own side. Approach as if you were going to drink from Christ's own side. That's really visceral. That's, that's almost unsettling. You know, it's, uh, to think, imagine that, like, like the cross on Calvary. And the same reality is happening as if you were going up to the cross and drinking from the side of Christ. When you approach the Eucharist, you are walking near to that same reality, the same 
saving passion. We're put in contact with the passion by the Eucharist. No greater love has this than a man should lay down his life for his friends. When you approach the Eucharist, you approach the act of greatest love. You approach the act of your greatest friend. You approach one who opened his side for him. There's, um, I'm going to butcher his name. There's a French artist, Georges de Valier, I think. He has a sacred heart that's, that's stunning. Um, it's Christ is standing and he is ripping his own chest open. Uh, it's really powerful. Like Christ, the, the love that Christ has is that his own love wants to open his heart for you. Um, ask me later, I can show you the image. Um, it's really, it's really striking. But this is what you approach, uh, you know, under the veil of the appearance of bread and wine, you're walking up to drink from Christ's own side. All right, third, what's the way the Eucharist is given? So we've talked about what it contains, which is Christ, or what it represents, which is his passion. What's the mode in which it's given to us? Food and drink. So, therefore, Thomas uh, concludes, the Eucharist does for our spiritual life everything that normal food does for our bodily life. It sustains us. It keeps us alive. It makes us grow. It restores us. And charmingly, it also gives us delight. Like uh, Professor Proust was speaking of wine. It's given to us in the form of bread and wine. It delights us. Christ says, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. So the Eucharist is given to us as food, and that's what it is for our spiritual life. If you're going to live the Christian life, you need to be consuming the Eucharist. It's not just like a sort of nice option you could avail yourself of. It's not a dessert, even though it is delightful. But to try to live the spiritual life without the Eucharist is like trying to be an athlete without eating. Um, I presume that people still know who Michael Phelps is. Okay, good. Um, I once actually gave, I would give a talk um, in like near Baltimore. And I said this, like Michael Phelps. Yeah. Local boy was down the road. Yeah. He's from, from Baltimore, which I had, I did not know anyway, Michael Phelps. So, you know, the Olympic, for those listening on the thing, great in, you know, 50 years, because I'm sure people will still be listening in 50 years. He was a great Olympian swimmer. Um, and, uh, his breakfast when he was training, uh, three sandwiches of fried eggs, cheese, lettuce, tomato, fried onions and mayonnaise, an omelet, a bowl of grits, three slices of French toast with powdered sugar, and then three chocolate chip pancakes. It's one, it's one breakfast. Um, no, I'm not, no, this is not to say that if you eat that, you become like an Olympian swimmer. Uh, you might float a little better, but I don't think you'll get, a, you'll get any faster. But... The same principles, though, if you're trying to become like an excellent Christian, to become an athlete for Christ, if you want to run so as to win, you need to eat and you need to eat, uh, you know, you need high caloric intake. You need to eat Jesus. You need to receive the Lord. This is um, also another thing that Professor Proust quoted. I think it's, say, Ignatius of Antioch. He's going to his death. And he essentially is saying, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. And what I want to eat and drink is the body and blood of Christ. And he knows he's going to his, his final 
combat. Um, and that's the only thing he wants because it's, he knows it's the only thing he needs, the only thing that can give him the strength to actually um, win. It won't come from himself. And again, it's not to say that simply by eating, you become a good athlete. And so, you know, receiving the sacrament without like the, without also like being open to the work of charity in your life after you've received the Eucharist, you need that as well. The Eucharist can become a powerful dynamic food for you. It helps you. You need the sacraments. We need to rely intentionally on the nourishment of the Eucharist. We shouldn't take it for granted. So when you go to Mass, you should turn to it intentionally. Like come to it expecting it to strengthen you, expecting it to heal you, to nourish you, to delight you, and ask for those graces. It's important to ask God for what you want. Uh, you know, God has ordained that some things he will give you if you ask for them. So ask for them. The fourth uh, angle through which Thomas looks at the effect of the Eucharist is the appearance under which it's given. So he's looked at what's contained in it, which is Jesus Christ, what's represented by it, which is the passion of Christ, the mode in which it's given, which is food and drink, and then the appearance, which is bread and wine. And here he quotes St. Augustine. He says, St. Augustine says, Our Lord betokened his body and blood in things which out of many units are made into some one whole. For out of many grains is one thing made, namely bread, and many grapes flow into one thing, namely wine. There's a unity out of many things that is present in bread and wine. Uh, there's a very, very old um, text called the Didache, um, which comes from maybe around even the year 100, maybe earlier, I don't know. Um, but it gives um, some of the earliest sort of liturgical prayers we have associated with the Eucharist. And there's a prayer where it says, um, as grain once scattered on the hillside was in this broken bread made one, so from all lands thy church be gathered into thy kingdom by thy son. So that the Eucharist is comes to us in the appearance of something that has gathered many different parts and unified them into a substantial whole. We call it Holy Communion. You know, you're united. There's a union in that. And it's not just with Jesus, but with everyone who is receiving it all around the world. And that's stunning. Uh, it also leads you to more difficult questions about the Christian life. Uh, it's very easy to want to be united with Jesus Christ. He's perfect. He's quite lovable. Uh, he's very unobjectionable. Uh, well, I don't know. Many people find ways to object to him, but in himself, he is unobjectionable. But there are many Christians, uh, you might know one or two of them, who are difficult to get along with, and you're sacramentally united to them. You engage in an act of holy communion with them. And this leads to, you know, well, what is the prayer we say right after the consecration? We say the Our Father. And you pray that terrifying phrase, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Which is frightening. Um, one, it's, oh, it's a great opportunity in one sense that 
as you forgive, so you will be forgiven. So in a sense, in a very qualified sense, you control your own destiny. But if you forgive other people, God is happy to forgive you. Um, But you can also close yourself off to forgiveness. And you can also close yourself off to the effect of the Eucharist. If you receive it and you are closing your heart to someone else, uh, you are falsifying the act of what you're doing. Think about like the actual mechanics of receiving the Eucharist. Everyone is walking up to the same place and receiving the same thing and engaging in a sign act that is signifying union with everyone else who is doing the same thing. And so if you're doing that while holding, withholding, you know, forgiveness or love from someone else, uh, in a sense, you are falsifying what you're doing. Um, So, you know, what I don't want to see is I don't want to see all of y'all just kind of sitting in the chapel now at mass and not going up to receive communion. Um, But it, we should think about that too, that we, need to take seriously the need to forgive others um, and to receive our own, and to realize that our ability to forgive comes from God's own mercy that we've received. Uh, What do you have that you have not received? So the Eucharist is the source of unity in the church, not just symbolically, but really. It's not that we just feel like we belong to each other, reunite to each other. And that's important too, because you know, some of those, maybe those one or two people you know, uh, you might never feel united to them or you might never feel forgiving towards them. That's all right. You can choose to forgive someone even as you don't feel good about them. So you can make an act of faith also in the fact that the Eucharist is uniting you together. So you have a deep bond. You are really joined to Christ by grace and you're made one of his members as is everyone else who's in union with Christ. It's not just an individual experience. It's also an inextricably ecclesial experience. The bond of charity is the principle of spiritual unity, and the Eucharist is the sacrament of charity. Now, so that's essentially the first article. There are uh, like six or seven. We're not going to go through every single of those articles, but I will just a little point from the the next article he asks. So the first article he asks whether or not this, the effect of this sacrament is the giving of grace. The second one he asks is whether or not the attaining of glory is an effect of this sacrament. So does this, does the Eucharist uh, make it so that you can attain glory? You can get to heaven. Thomas quotes John's gospel again. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. But eternal life is the life of glory. Therefore, the attaining of glory is an effect of this sacrament. Um, He then gives this awesome passage from um, the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah, who is uh, under a tree, not doing much. And an angel appears and says, you need to get up and walk. You need to go to the Mount Horeb. And he sees, he points out to him, uh, food and drink. And it says, Elias ate and drank and walked in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights unto the Mount of God, Horeb. We're in the same sort of position. We've been called to go to heaven, to walk there. And we've been given this food that can sustain us 40 days and 40 nights of a long 
sometimes lonely, sometimes hard journey towards heaven. And the Eucharist is our strength for that. It's our, our way bread, our food for the way. Um, and it does have the power to bring us there because why? It's Jesus Christ, not in any other diminished form. So that why did Christ come? He came that we might have life and so that where I am, they also might be. That's the, you know, the prayer that Christ prays to his father. And so he gives himself to us to strengthen us to come to himself so that you see again that like within the Eucharist, you have this mystery of God's grace, which is that God acts first. He comes to us, he feeds us, and he sustains us. He doesn't just give us an initial jolt of energy and then step back. He is both the beginning, the path, and the destination. And the Eucharist gives us the strength to walk with ever-growing strength to the Mount of God. So the Eucharist is, you know, without exaggeration, the greatest, the most sublime, the most beautiful gift that the universe has ever received and could ever receive. It's the body and blood of Jesus Christ, God made man. When you go up to receive communion, you're given one word to say. Amen. What are you saying amen to? Think about that at Mass. What does amen mean? It means, I believe it. It's true. So be it. And that's what you're given to say when you receive the Eucharist. What are you saying amen to? You're saying amen to the fact that what looks like a little circle of bread has ceased to be bread and is truly the flesh of the God-man. You're saying amen to the fact that what looks like wine, what smells like wine, what tastes like wine has ceased to become wine and is the blood of Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. We say amen to that. We say amen to the Eucharist. He who believes in me. So in order to receive communion effectively, you need faith. You need to believe that it is what Christ says it is. You can't rely on the senses here. Seeing, touching, tasting are all deceived. The only thing, the only sense that works is hearing because you can hear Christ say, this is my body. And we believe, we say amen. And that's how we are opened to the power of the sacrament. Let's say uh, this, you know, to my knowledge, has never happened at the House of Studies, and God forbid it never does happen. But let's say that a, uh, at the con- after the consecration at Mass this morning, a mouse scampers across the sanctuary, climbs up onto the altar, grabs a host, runs off to its little mouse hole. Is that what they call those? Okay. Mouse, um, and uh, wherever. Yeah. Okay. Being recorded is a strange thing. Um, so the mouse takes a host, goes off home, and eats it. Did that mouse receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Yeah, it's what it is. But does that mouse receive eternal life? No, why? Yeah, a mouse can't say amen. We can say amen, we're not mice. A mouse doesn't have the rational capacity to see, to understand, and to believe. Mice don't say amen. We say amen. 
We say amen to the body of the one who said, let there be light. The one who spoke the universe into nothing, out, out of nothing. We say amen to the body of the one whose hand can raise a little girl to life, whose feet walked on water, whose voice can cast out a thousand demons with one word, a body that was slashed by scourging, crowned with thorns that carried a cross up a mountain, was pierced and expired for our salvation. We say amen to that. It's the body of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Mary. We eat it as our food. We say amen to the blood. There's a prayer that St. Thomas has written to the Eucharist. Um, one of the passages he says, um, speaking to the Eucharist, says, Pie pelicane Jesu domine, me immundum munda tuo sanguine, cuius una stila, salvum facere totum mundum, quit ab omni shellere. Right? No. Um, no, so it's a holy pelican, Lord Jesus. So the pelican, there's, uh, the legend is, legends are to be read, um, the legend is that the pelican would pierce its own breast so that its young could feed on its blood. Um, so it's associated with Christ then. So holy pelican, Lord Jesus, may immundum munda tuo sanguine, cleanse my sins by your blood, cuius una stila, of which one drop, una stila, salvum facere totum mundum quit ab omni shellere, of which one drop has the power to cleanse the entire world of sin. One drop. And he poured out all of it for us. And we walk up in front of it. You walk on your feet to it. And you say amen to it. And you receive it. The blood of an invisible, untouchable God who made himself visible, who made himself touchable. You say amen to the blood that conquered the devil. Uh, St. John Chrysostom has this image, uh, this awesome, awesome image of so, uh, those who have gone to Mass and are walking out after having sort of like empurpled their tongues with the blood of Christ, they're like fire-breathing lions is the image that he uses, which terrify the devil. So imagine that, like all the people walking out, going to coffee and donuts are a bunch of fire-breathing lions, you know, which terrify the devil. Um, but you, I mean, you put the power of God on your tongue. The same blood, you know, the blood that's foreshadowed by the blood of the Paschal Lamb that would stop the angel of death. It's the blood beyond all price, more precious than silver, more precious than gold. It's the blood that we receive as our nourishment. It's a drink that puts God in us. A drink that gives us eternal life. And we say amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, happy to take questions. Uh, so, just to talk about faith, I think it may be an obvious one, but you say, like, the reason why the rack can't receive is because inability of consent. Um, you, what, about, what would you say to, like, since we have people in our understanding, we know that they're incapable of consent to receiving it, and that, that they're they're basically not able to mentally process what it means for the person to be. So how would you say that what that has an effect on in their reception? So in a sense, like how does that, for someone who's mentally incapable of processing what it means to mm -hmm. be, what um, does that have? 
so, I mean, I know there are different traditions and different rites. Um, and I don't know, I'll just say right now, I don't know immediate church law on this. Um, but I do know that like if you, uh, so in the Latin rite, I believe that you need to be like of sound mind. You need to know what you're doing. So you wouldn't just go like shove the Eucharist into like a coma. Somebody was in a coma, um, you know, because that, that doesn't benefit them. It's not like, it's not magic. It's not like, well, if this touches them, even if they have no idea that that's going on, um, then no, take this example that, um, you have the, uh, the woman with the hemorrhage so that Christ is like, people are like crushing in on him. Like everybody's touching him and she just touches, but she's healed. One woman is healed. She touches him with faith. So, you know, Unfortunately, you can just sometimes kind of like bonk into Christ in community, not think about it and sort of go on your way. But you need to touch him with faith. Yeah. Yes. So in the Eastern Rite churches, I know that they, they begin, like, being Catholic. They give communion pretty early on. Mm-hmm. As soon as, like, the kids begin. Yeah. How does that really kind of compare to, like, say, being able to process that yeah. in this case? especially since a lot of times if you have a younger kid, they don't Yeah, I've got a lot of friends who are Byzantines. Um, I don't really know. Um, I mean, again, that's kind of why I'm saying like, this is the Latin rite. Um, I'm not saying that that's like an evil practice. Um, I just don't, I don't understand it. I've not studied it. Um, yeah. Yeah, the church's faith supplies. Yeah, that sounds... Uh, to me, that sounds uh, because this is like good. in the Eastern. Like I assume, I think it's like we see there's baptism, confirmation, and first communion all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah, so that the the church would supply the faith for it. So maybe the problem is like everybody needs to to the degree that they are capable. Of, let's say. Could be. Yeah. Justin. Um, less important, but still. Curiosity. We, we talk about in receiving communion and entering into communion with everyone else who also receives communion. Uh, what about people who receive communion not in a proper state? Mm-hmm. state, state? Yeah. Are we still entering into communion if we are in a state of grace and they are in a state of force and we are still entering communion with them? A good question. Um, so the question is. Uh, Let's say that I'm in the state of mortal sin. Bob is not. We both received communion. Is Bob united to me? Um, no. There's not like, because why? Um, the, if you're in the state of mortal sin, you're dead. Like dead people can't eat. Uh, you know, food is for the living. Um, so what Bob needs, in the sacrament Bob needs, no, sorry, sacrament I need in this situation, um, having unfortunately committed a mortal sin. Yeah, so I, the sacrament I need is not the Eucharist. I need confession. I need to be brought back to life, and then I need to eat. So no, but then since you're not, because mortal sin cuts you off from Christ, you're, you detach yourself from his body, so therefore you're no longer united. Um, so what you would need then is hopefully God gives you the grace to go to confession and then be reunited. So what then are the effects of receiving? Uh, another mortal sin. Yeah, sacrilege. It's not good. Don't do it. 
don't 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 do it. Yeah, it's uh, because you are um, you are defiling the body of God. Uh, it is you know you eat like this Saint Paul like you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Yeah, so go to confession. Yeah, yeah. Um, you talked about like why we say Amen when we Yeah, I knew somebody was going to bring that up. Yeah, but the priest says it for you. Yeah, he says, you know, Corpus, uh, what Corpus Domino Caesar Christi Caserta in Vita Maternum, Amen. Um, so I guess you're like intending that as well, but it's a Novus Ordo style talk. I mean, come on, cut me some slack. Um, it works better. It's not as beautiful to say like the priest says Amen. The priest says Amen. You say Amen, and it's yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, but. You're all going to say amen at this mess, so, but yes, um, your point is granted. Yeah. And my talk falls apart now, thanks a lot. No, yeah. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, one of the prophets that you had mentioned about, like, God, I can't remember who it was. Elijah, probably. Elijah. But I leave two names, sorry. Elijah, and then I said Elias because translation. So Elijah, when he, like, ate and then went on the 40 day journey, um, he was like, oh, I don't think you're trying to say that we don't need to eat the Eucharist only once every 40 days, but like, can you kind of explain the, like, why to that? Sure. Um, so yeah, for that example, because the image St. Thomas is using that scripture passage to talk about getting to your destination. So that, and also that certainly one Holy Communion is sufficient in itself. Certainly. So like, yes, uh, you know, in one sense, objectively within itself, the Eucharist is sufficient one time because it's Jesus, but subjectively for us. So St. Ambrose actually says like, I sin every day. So I need to be healed every day. That's like a paraphrase, but he essentially saying like, I need to take medicine every single day because I'm a sick sinner. You know, like this is like, he's talking like venial sins like, because the Eucharist can forgive venial sin and strengthen you. But in the same, like you need to like, uh, there's a long tradition of like encouraging regular um, reception of the Eucharist. So that for the fact that like, we are constantly weak and constantly in need of this medication. We should take it. Yeah. Or do you think more strengthened, like there's much less bacteria, which makes it easy to not be Would that be more strengthened than, say, like someone in the middle of nowhere, like, say, in countries where mass is only able to be said once a year because there's so few priests? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I keep forgetting to like say the question to the thing. Oh. Um, so the question is, let's say that there's somebody uh, in the middle of nowhere who can only go to mass once a year. Are they um, necessarily in a worse situation than the daily communicant? Um, not necessarily. I mean, because through no fault of their own. And so, um, you know, it can be that God can supply graces for them or that they perhaps because of that, they approach with greater fervor. But um, objectively, it's better to be able to receive the Eucharist regularly um, than it is to not. So it's not the same that we should say, like, well, we should all move to like, I don't know, pick your middle of nowhere place. I don't want to offend anybody. Um, you know, so, and then just don't go to church for a while so that you'll really mean it. No, like you need, it's good to receive the Eucharist as often as you can. Yeah. So. I heard you just now say because of that, they approach with greater fervor. Could be. So are, are we saying then that the sort of the state of mind with which you approach to receive affects the degree to which you receive the grace? Yes. Um, again, like objectively, it's Jesus. 
but then like your subjective disposition with which, which, you know, is the result of God's grace working in you. Um, yes, it can uh, greatly affect the effect, affect the effect of the Eucharist in you because, um, like, you know, again, like take the, the woman of the hemorrhage example, like she touches Jesus and is healed. Other people just touch Jesus. And maybe some people are like, you know, touch him with great devotion. They receive some, some grace. Um, but there can be degrees of that depending on like, are you focusing on what you're doing? Are you just sort of like, are you thinking about lunch or bottomless mimosas at brunch? You know, like, you know, what are you thinking about? <laughs> it's just an example. It's not from personal experience. Or anything like that. Um, you know, but you know, what are you doing? Uh, what are you intending? What are you seeking? What are you thirsty for? What are you opening yourself up for? Um, it's like uh, Father Andrew Hofer. Um, he's a friar here. He describes the Eucharist at times as an all-you-can-eat buffet, which he says are some of the best words ever. You know, an, an all-you-can-eat buffet, not an all-you-care-to-eat buffet, all-you-can-eat buffet. It's like a challenge. So, like, you don't, like, you, if you're going to an all-you-can-eat buffet and you know that, you're not going to spend the day, like, snacking, right? You're going to be like, I'm going to get all I can eat. I'm going to get my money's worth. So, um, in the same way, like, you know, in the same way, what a beautiful segue to the Eucharist. Um, but you want to prepare yourself. You want to make yourself hungry for the Eucharist. You want to want it. And that will open yourself to more of what God wants to give you, you know? Yeah. It's like you want to have like a big gulp or like a little small cup. They can both be filled up, which is great. And you'll be totally full. But that's what you want. I don't know. Um, I mean, I do know that, yeah, abstaining from receiving the Eucharist is a practice that some people have done at various times. It's, uh, you know, throughout church history. Um, certainly, as church life has developed in the Western church now, it's uh, less frequent and not necessarily advisable. Um, because, again, like the sort of the medicine principle, like, well, I will real I won't take my medicine so then I'll really need it. And that'll be great. Um, so, you know, but what is it trying to, what's the good that the Eucharistic fast, or do you mean like abstaining from the Eucharist itself or like the actual I, fast? I, ah, I, sorry. I I'm sorry. Just not eating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My apologies. Yeah. So that's a much easier, simpler thing to talk about than because some people just decide to not receive the Eucharist for a while. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah, well, I think there's probably a uh, multivalence to why you would do that. Um, one, it can be good to be physically hungry when you're going to receive the Eucharist so that you're thinking like, man, I'm hungry. Oh, good. I'm going to go eat. That'll be great. Um, that's all I get. Yeah. Uh, but then also um, to, you know, you want to be, you don't want to be sort of like mixing things up. You want to say like, well, I can have like a cheeseburger and then I'll have Jesus and I'll have more cheeseburger. Um you know, so you want to uh, do as much as you can to make that moment of what you're eating um, when you receive the Eucharist, uh, yeah, more meaningful. There's a danger, though, to deciding that, like, well, I will make it a, like a rule that I will just, you know, from midnight until I go to Mass, even though that's not church law, I just won't do that. So, you know, uh, the current church, 
law is that it's uh, an hour before you receive the Eucharist, you should be fasting. Granted, that's like, okay, you get in the car, you drive to church. You know, you could be like be eating right until you get into the car, depending on what your drive is like. So, you know, um, it could be admirable. It could be good if you want to take more time, but you're not required to, and you shouldn't feel like a, you know, scrupulous drive to do so. Yeah, but I think that is one of the reasons behind the Eucharistic fast. Yeah, sure. Can you go into the effects of the spiritual communion? Right, yeah, so the effects of the spiritual communion. Um, so, uh, yeah, that you can eat and drink. Um, so, like, the, the person uh, who is in a state of moral sin can go up and receive communion, but they don't receive the effects. The person who is, like, homebound and can't get to church can make an act of spiritual communion and receive the effects. Um, certainly it's better to have both, but a spiritual communion can, God can uh, give you the graces of a commun- of the Eucharist. He's not bound by the sacraments, even though he binds himself to the sacraments. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think that. Yeah, so the question is, um, with regards to you know, the, our Father and forgiveness and receiving the Eucharist, do we need to make sure we have this sort of really clean sheet? We've checked off every box. Um, in one sense, I think that you'd sort of paralyze yourself trying to remember everybody you've ever wronged or that you have a grudge against. Um, theoretically, I'm not saying that you would ever do that, right. um, but. Um, no, but you should make an act of the will that like you, you know, like, Lord, I renounce like any unforgiveness that I have. Like I place that on the altar. I renounce it. I give it to you. Um, or, you know, because there can be particular people that are very hard to forgive. Uh, you know, people really hurt each other and it's wrong. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not to deny that there's, there's injustice in the world or that there's real pain and trauma in the world, but that, um, you can also just, you can make an act of the will and say, you know, I forgive that debt. It doesn't mean that what they did is okay. It doesn't mean that there may still be wounds from what happened. Um, and it doesn't mean that maybe people need to be punished, but it does mean that what you're saying is like the debt that you owe me, I renounce, which is also healthy for us because if you don't do that, you're sort of putting your peace in the hands of someone who hurt you. It's like, until they like have paid and have apologized, I will not forgive them. You're actually like making your forgiveness conditional on somebody that you didn't trust to begin with. Um, so it's important to you know ask God for the grace to forgive and make the decision to forgive and to renew it because it's going to be hard. It's going to take a long time until your feelings, if they ever do, catch up to that. But that's okay. But you just keep making. You renew that that intention, that decision every day. But I wouldn't say like you need to be like, oh, I forgot to hurt no, like, Okay, yeah, no, don't do that. Please don't do that. Yes, Sean. So how would you say we can work to avoid things like uh, the Jansenism and scrupulosity towards the Eucharist? Um, how to avoid Jansenism and scrupulosity with regards to the Eucharist? Um, I mean, be humble, like accept the fact that, uh, yes, we are weak. The just man sins seven times a day. Um, Christ came to save sinners. 
And if you, um, and that's good, but that also that, um, the Eucharist does what it says, what he says it does. Like it, it forgives sins. It strengthens you. It heals you. And that God's grace does that. So we're not irredeemable. Um, and yeah, scrupulosity can be a real cross, can be really painful to deal with it, but to also trust that like, um, you know, God has, God is merciful. He loves us. And he uh, has offered himself. He says like, take this and eat it, take it. You know, he's pretty insistent. Um, so, and, you know, if it's a real case of like real ingrained scrupulosity, that's something, um, you know, to talk with, seek spiritual counsel for that, uh, bring it to prayer. But um, I don't know, ask for not, I would just, in short, I kind of blabbered for a little bit. I would just say, ask for um, both self-knowledge and knowledge of God together. Because if you only have knowledge of yourself, you'll just hate yourself and despair. And if you only have knowledge of God, you'll just presume and think anything is fine. But if you have the two together, you know that you are a weak creature, but who is loved by God and who is sustained by God's grace, that's the combination you want. Um, you mentioned the mouse being capable of saying amen to what Jesus is. And, yep. Um, this is a Novus Ordo mouse. You know. Okay. <laughs> Um, let's see. So my dad's first communion happened when he was still Jewish. Um, he, uh, you know, he was dating my mom and they went to mass. I mean, he had like never been to mass. And so she, my mom's like, just, you know, just do everything I do. Just kind of, you know, sit, stand, kneel. And she wasn't thinking about that. So they kind of, they went to, they went to mass and she goes up to communion and then she's looking around for him. It's like, well, where's Dan? Where'd he go? And like, he's like right behind her. And apparently what he had like gone up and like the body of Christ, he just said, thank you. And taken, you know, received Jesus. So his first communion, um, you know, there's no malice in that act. So he's not, um, I don't think that's a sin, you know, certainly, but then like the effects of what he was, I don't think that there's, uh, the effect of the Eucharist would take place in him because he's not desiring it in that way. And also he's not, he's not baptized at that point. So he's not disposed to receive it that way. Um, you know, so, so there can be, you can do that without fault. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, ask the question again one more time. See if I missed anything. Uh, well, what would you say to him about someone who is fully catechized and doesn't believe that it's truly the body? Mm. So like actively is not believing that that's what it is. Maybe by not knowing their own. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you can have like, you know, that there's a sort of, yeah, they're not entirely culpable for the formation they received. Um, you know, perhaps they think like, okay, I know I've been told that's not the body and blood of Christ. I've also been told it's good to receive it and I would like to, and I think it's good for me. I wouldn't be surprised if like God still works through that to give you grace, but certainly they are, um, they have been, you know, like intellectually abused and really hampered in their ability to draw closer to God, uh, because that's a real obstacle to not believe that that is the body and blood of Christ. Um, yeah, so that's, uh. Pray for catechists, you know? Yeah. So, yes? I think I remember hearing him at one point when he was standing in Westminster, he answered to an early 
discussion on the people who are intellectually challenged mm -hmm. or developmentally challenged. And I think also that it's in, in the Western church, it's necessary that you be able to distinguish it from ordinary people. Okay. Um, I just, so you yeah. This is not just ordinary people. Yeah. And I think at least a person who's poorly catechized can probably do, do that. Sure. Yeah, I believe that's possible. Yeah. Final questions? All right, great.